1 John uh, chapter 4, we're looking at verses 15 through 18. And if you would, if you're able to, stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. 1 John uh, chapter 4, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to begin in uh, verse 11 and go through verse 18. Here's what John writes. He says, in, uh, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And then we come here to verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in him abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Father, we do ask for encouragement from your word through the work of your spirit. These are uh, awesome truths and we're not equal to them, to, to grasp them or to apply them. So we, we would ask that you abiding with us would give us the ability to know these things, to do them, and to benefit uh, from obedience to you. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I'm always uh, curious as to how a sermon is going to be received uh, every week, I wonder as I kind of prepare, okay, who's going to benefit from this and, and what part of the sermon is, is going to, to go well and uh, who's, who's going to be able to, to tell me something that they've learned from this and, and uh, you know, who's going to try to get me fired. I mean, it's, it's always very curious to me is to see how a message is going to be received. And, and uh, honestly, I am not a great predictor at, at how a message is going to be received. And I'm always surprised by the questions I get. I'm surprised by the reaction to different things. And, and um, it, it's, I'm always nervous to see how things are going to go each week. And I have to confess to a special level of curiosity this week. Uh, this, this passage is a very uh, profound passage. It's been a, a great passage for me to think about this week. And and even as I was writing down some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, I was, I was looking at the text, I was studying the text, and, and um, as I was writing down what I believe the text was, was teaching, I was, I was just very surprised at the words that I was writing down. I was like, can, can this be right? And some of the things that I'm going to say this morning as we talk about some aspect of God's love here and the confidence that we're to have as a result of, of God's love, it's it's just very profound truths, and, and, and I'd even say maybe some confusing things, if, if, not, if not controversial. I anticipate some good questions coming out of this message, and, and that's, that's helpful, and, and so please ask questions. You know, we have the post-Sunday app on, on Monday mornings, and uh, so send questions, email me questions that you have. 
Because I have, again, I just anticipate that some of the ways that I'm going to say some things are, are going to, to need some clarification. I'm going to be walking a tightrope here on several different things. And so I'm, I'm excited about it, but a little bit nervous. But let me start with the question. Let me start with a question. Is it right to fear God? Is it right to fear God? And I think that most of us would say, absolutely, it's, it's right to fear God. Uh, in fact, the, the youth summer camp theme was, was fearing God. And I have a t-shirt from the camp that says, fear is good. And there's a, a picture of kind of a line. I wore it on Friday, and I saw someone wear it last night. I mean, so it, that, that, that statement is true, right? What does the, the psalmist say in Psalm 211? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In Psalm 25:12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist declares, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And in verse 17 of Psalm 103, we read, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, on those who fear him. In First Peter chapter 3, what does it tell us? Fear God. So is it right to fear God? Absolutely. Well, my second question would be, is it always right to fear God in every sense of the word? And to that, I would cautiously say no. There are some aspects of our relationship with God that are not to be marked by fear. A certain type of fear. In fact, let me, let me just give you one example. It's from the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, John, who wrote 1 John, is also here writing Revelation. In, in verse 7, he describes Jesus as the one who is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So he's talking about Jesus Christ coming in a sense of, of judgment, and here he goes on and he talks about hearing Jesus' voice, and it says he hears this voice and he turns to look at Jesus, and it says in the midst of the lampstand there was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John does what any reasonable person would do in that situation. He says, and I fell down like a dead man. So here's John confronted with the majesty of the one who is going to to judge, the one to whom people are are going to to wail and mourn when they see him. John, as a sinner, sees the one who's coming to judge sinners and, and, and falls down as dead. And what does Jesus say to John in that context where John, a sinner, is confronted with the majesty of the Son of God? Jesus says to John, fear not. Now, what I believe is true in Scripture is that God calls those who are believers to not fear him in the sense of of condemnation. God doesn't desire the believer to fear his judgment. 
this is a truth that I believe many of you struggle with, that, that I struggle with. You see, what this means is that when a believer is confronted with his or her sin, it means that it is wrong to believe that God is going to retaliate against you in some way. And I think most of us have trouble believing that. I mean, you may in some sense say, okay, I believe that I'm a Christian, and I believe that that someday I'm going to be delivered from my sin. I believe, maybe you would even say this, I believe that I'm eternally secure. I believe that that I'm secure in the hand of God, and I will enter into heaven. But here's an idea that I think is hard for you to grasp. I believe, it's certainly hard for me to grasp, that right now, in the present, as I'm confronted with the reality that I'm a sinner, as I, I look at relationships that I've damaged, at things that I've, I've said to a spouse or to children or to parents or, or co-workers, as, as I think about those things or, or thoughts that I've had or thoughts, you may think of thoughts that you've had or, or attitudes you've had, it's, it's hard, I think, for you to believe, it's certainly hard for me to believe that right now in the present, God isn't going to somehow exact some sort of payment from me for what I have done. That God isn't going to retaliate against my sin in some way. There isn't some sort of condemnation that, that I'm going to get for, for the sin that I've committed. I, I think that's a hard thing for us to grasp, but I think that it is a biblical truth. I think that sometimes we struggle with fearing God's loss of love for me, or that God will still somehow judge me in some way, condemn me in some way. And I would argue this this morning. It's wrong for you to think of God that way. Now, now, maybe this isn't a hard thing for you to grasp, but it's certainly a hard thing for me to grasp. But, but this, is the, this is what I think John is saying here. Even at the moment that I am confronted with God's absolute, complete perfection and my own sinfulness, even at that moment, it is wrong for me to believe that God is going to condemn me if I'm a believer. Even at the moment that I'm confronted with his absolute holiness and my absolute sinfulness, even in that moment, believing that God is going to condemn me for sin is a sinful response. It's something I'm still trying to wrap my head around. And maybe some of you are going to question my wording on some of these things. I'm trying to be careful, but maybe some of my wording does need nuance. But for those of you who would question the wording of some of this, or someone who, some of you who would question the truth, can this really be true that God isn't going to condemn me, that God isn't going to, to, to act punitively toward me, punish me for my sin? Not talking about discipline, we'll talk about that later. But if, if it's true that God, that I'm under no condemnation for God, some of you are going to question that wording and say, how can that be? And, and here would be my answer. I don't fully understand it. But my answer would be that God's love is far more powerful than we can comprehend. And if I say some things this morning about your freedom from God's condemnation and you say, boy, that sounds unfair, then I think you're beginning to arrive at the point. If God's love sounds unfair, that's only because it is. 
If God's love sounds magnificently extravagant, that's only because it is. Here's the central idea I want you to grasp as we go through this this passage in 1 John. Here's what I want you to kind of think about. God's extravagant love through Christ. God's extravagant love through Christ gives us confidence that we are free from condemnation. God's extravagant love through Christ gives us confidence that we are free from condemnation. That's love's confidence that we're talking about this morning. Because of God's love, his extravagant love, I have confidence that I'm free from condemnation. And let's walk through these four verses together and, and, and let's see, why shouldn't I be afraid of God's wrath and judgment? Certainly in and of myself, I, I should be, but, but why shouldn't I be? What, what's the basis of my confidence? And there's three things we're going to look at. Here's the first thing in verses 15 and 16. I can be confident, first of all, because of the gospel. I can be confident because of the gospel. Let's look at verse 15 and 16 here as, as John is, is talking to these, to these dear beloved uh, in Asia Minor. He says uh, in verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so what is John talking about? He's just talked about how Jesus is the Savior of the world, and and now he's talking about the gospel. uh, How, based on the truth test that we've talked about already in 1 John, on what basis you and I, can be, be confident in. It's the gospel. And there's six things about the gospel that I want us to think about as we think about our confidence in the gospel. The first thing that we see in these verses and in the context of 1 John about the gospel that he believes is, first of all, this. A sin is real, and we can't deal with sin on our own. That's, that's the first thing is we know the confidence that we have because of the gospel. The first thing is sin is real, and we can't deal with it on our own. What does he said in verse 14? He said, that, there's a sa- that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There's this necessity we have for someone to deliver us. And, and then in verse 15 here, now he says that uh, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, he's, he's using some shorthand there to describe some things that he's talked about already in First John. There are some things about Jesus Christ you need to know and to believe. And that's the exact expression he uses in verse 16. There's some things we've come to know and believe. We'll talk about that in just a second. Sin is real, John believes, and it's, it's something, a reality, that we can't deal with on our own. Remember in uh, chapter 1, as he was talking about sin at the very end of chapter 1, what does he say? He says, uh, first of all, if you say that, that sin isn't that big of a deal, you're deceiving yourself. He says you're, you're lying if you say you don't have any sin, and you're also lying if you're confronted with sin and say, well, that's not that big of a deal, that's not sin. He says, look, sin is real, and, and you can't deal with it on your own. That's the first thing we see John believes about the gospel as we think about 1 John. A second thing that John believes about the gospel is that judgment is coming due to sin. So he believes that we're all sinners, that we can't deal with sin on our own. And the second thing that John believes is that there's a coming judgment because of sin. He says this in chapter 2, verse 28, this idea of confidence before Christ when he comes. He'd say it in his other works as well. John 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit convicting concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he talks about in John 5, the the judgment that Jesus is bringing. So John believes that sin is real. We can't deal with it on our own. Secondly, he believes that 
that judgment is coming due to sin. And the third thing that we see he believes here is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he was the sacrifice who turned away God's wrath. And you see 1 John chapter 2, what does John say? He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. That is, he's the, the complete satisfaction for our sins. It comes here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, and he says, when we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. He's saying, uh, it's kind of shorthand, for all the things that these uh, false teachers are teaching about who Jesus is, we confess that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, the only one who is able to deal with sin. So what does John believe about the gospel? He believes that, that sin is real, that we're sinners. He believes that sin is going to be judged, and he believes that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, who deals perfectly with sin. The, the fourth thing that we see that John believes about the gospel, he believes that in that act of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to turn away God's wrath, in that act, he believes we find the very definition of love, right? As he says here in 1 John chapter 4, he says, well, earlier in the chapter 2, he talks about how in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then even here in verses 15 and 16, he talks about, as, as he's talking about the gospel and, and God abiding in us, he says, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And he's talking there about the sacrificial work of Jesus that enables him to be the Savior. The fifth thing we, we see that John believes about the gospel, not only are we sinners, not only is judgment coming due to sin, not only is Jesus Christ fully deal with God's wrath, and not only is, is that act of Jesus dealing with God's wrath love, the fifth thing that John believes is that we must trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, right? Notice what he says in verse 16. Look at your text with me. He says, so we have come to know and to believe, and he's, he's t- using that, that perfect tense there. He says, we've, we've come to know something in the past about who we are and who Jesus Christ is. And because of that knowledge we have, we've, we've believed in him. We believe what God says concerning sin. We believe we can't deal with it on our own. We believe that God's judgment is coming. We believe that Jesus Christ has, has dealt with God's wrath, and so we believe it. Unlike these pre-Gnostic heretics who are teaching these things about secret knowledge, that's not what we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. We trust in him alone for our salvation. Now, before I go on, tell you this, the sixth thing that, that I think is so crucial about the gospel here. Uh, just notice a couple other things in the, the text here. Look at verse 15 again. And, and look, at, look at how he phrases it. He says, whoever confesses, and that, that, that word that he uses there, confesses, is a, is a kind of implies a conditional aspect. It, it means not everyone is going to confess this. What that means is not everyone has received the, the gospel, has believed the gospel. All the other reasons that we shouldn't fear, all the reasons that we should have confidence in God's love don't apply to those who have not confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Notice also one other thing here. Confesses is in the, the present tense. It's, it's, it's happening right now, and God's abiding is happening right now. And, and, and I would just say this before we go on to the, the, the sixth thing about the gospel that John tells us here. 
most likely in a room with this many people, this, this condition doesn't apply to all of us, right? The confidence that we can have of, of God's love for us doesn't apply to anyone who has not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who hasn't come to, to not just know things intellectually, but, but to believe them, to place their trust in Jesus Christ. And my encouragement, of course, to, to every one of us would be to, to place our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, sins that you and I cannot deal with on our own. That's, that's the gospel that John is, is calling us here to. Okay, so, so, so think about where we are. See, we we want to be confident because of the gospel. We want to believe that we don't fall under God's condemnation because of the gospel. And you say, okay, well, all this is good so far, but, but all of this seems to be future-centered. Okay, so I know that in the future I won't face God's wrath. How does this apply to God's condemnation right now and, and, and temporally? And, and, and here's the sixth thing about the gospel. And, and I would argue so many of us stop with these first five truths. that Okay, we believe that we're sinners. We believe Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died for our sins. We believe he turned away God's wrath. We believe that um, in that is love, and we believe that we need to believe. Okay, but here, here's the cool thing about the gospel as John understands it. This is very important to grasp if you're to have confidence of God's love. You have been saved by God to be brought into a relationship. Listen to the words that John uses here. Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he says, God abides in him and he in God. And he says, we have come to know and to believe. So we've we've come to know these things intellectually and to place our trust in the love that God has for us. Not just this objective relationship that God says, okay, I'm going to to bring you into a relationship with me so I can save you from hell. But he's saying, I've, I've come to... We've come to believe the love that God has for us, this relational aspect of, of this, this um, interaction we're having with him. He says, uh, whoever has come to, to know and believe the love that God has for him, that God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so as we're in this relationship with God, we're abiding in love, and we're abiding in God, and, and God is abiding in us. And there's this, this oneness of relationship that is, is similar to this relationship that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit enjoy together abiding together in perfect unity and love, we become a part of that. What does he say? What does he say? He says, if this is true of you, God abides in, in, in you, and in, in you abide in God. There's this, this closeness of relationship. Jesus would say in John 14, do you not believe that I am in the Father the Father's in me. And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does, does his works. And so the, the Father and the Son dwell together. And, and then Jesus invites us, we see this in John 14, abide, invites us to abide in him and, and, and he in us and God in us. And it's this beautiful picture. Peter in First Peter, I believe, in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, conveys one of the most succinct, beautiful summations of the gospel. What does he say? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous, suffered for you and I, the unrighteous. He suffered for our sins. Why? 
that he might bring us to God. If you do not grasp that aspect of the gospel, that you have been saved by God to be brought into a relationship with God, you haven't understood the gospel that God has communicated to you, the, the good news. There's a beautiful picture, I believe, of the gospel in the, the human relationship that occurs through adoption. I, I have my daughter's permission to, to share some of these things. Whenever we adopted Ellie, our purpose wasn't just to save her from something. We didn't just say, well, you know, an orphanage is a bad place, so let's just, let's just deliver a kid out of an orphanage. If our daughter or any, any adopted child grew up believing that the, the ultimate purpose of adoption was to be saved from something, it would be a tragedy, right? We didn't bring our daughter into our home so she wouldn't be someplace else. We brought her to be in our home so that she would abide with us. Whitney and I, when we got married, we, we became this, 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 one flesh, we became this one flesh relationship. We, we abide together in a relationship, and then we brought other children into our family, and, and they became a part of our family, and, and Ellie comes into our family, and, and, and the goal through the gospel, through it being lived out in our lives, is that we abide together as a family relationally. And if she didn't have a sense of that love, what a tragedy that would be if she believed that she were somehow in danger of, of losing our affection or... I even hesitate to say this as an illustration, but if she believed that if she displeased us, we'd make her go sleep in the backyard or, or she would lose some of our affection or wouldn't become a full member of the family if she displeased us, what a tragedy that would be. That's not the gospel. That's not the beauty of adoption. Adoption is being brought into a family so that we can abide together and be one and, and, and exist together in this beautiful relationship by God's grace as he allows it. That's, that's the goal. Ultimately, the goal is the glory of God, but I believe God is glorified as that relationship exists between people who were not formerly a part of a family now are part of a family. Now, here's the, the deal. There's nothing that Ellie could do to alienate my affection. There, there's nothing that she could do as my daughter, to, to be removed from that relationship, she's, she's, she's permanently ensconced. As, as my daughter, we, we've, we've signed all the paperwork. And even more importantly, we've, we've covenanted in that relationship. Now, if that's true of me, an imperfect human father, if God's goal in the gospel is to do the same for you, how can you not be confident that he will do it? That's the gospel. And as we encounter the truth of the gospel, we say, God loves me and God wants to abide with me and I need to be confident in that relationship and some of us aren't. The gospel is not some contract that God has legally bound himself to do nice things for you. The gospel is a covenant relationship by which God enters into an eternal loving relationship with you. You abide in him, he abides in you. There should be a lot of confidence in that. 
Here's the second thing, reason you should be confident. Now, by the way, this first point, it's a, be confident in the, in the gospel. It's a, th- it's a theological point, and, and then these next two points kind of, kind of flow from that. So the second thing is we need to be confident because Christ's righteousness is counted as, as your righteousness. You need to be confident because Christ's righteousness is counted as your righteousness. He says in verse 17, by this is the love by this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. What does this mean? Well, first of all, when it says, by this is love perfected with us, and he's talking there about love accomplishing its goal through the gospel. As, as, as we respond to the truth of the gospel, as we confess that Jesus Christ is, as, is God and uh, believe in him, know these truths about him, believe in him, as, as that happens and we abide in him, and he abides in us, and we, we love him, he loves us, and we love each other. As those things that we've talk, been talking about in First John 4 all happen, the love of God is perfected, it's accomplished, it, it reaches its goal. And the result of love attaining this goal, what does he say in verse 17? He says, by this is love, by this is love perfected with us. And then what's the result? It says, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, on its surface, that sounds like a ridiculous statement to make. How in the world can you and I as sinners have confidence in the day of judgment? Uh, think about what, uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8. He, he's talking about, I'm um, sorry, verse 9 and following. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And, and that's a, a verse that can rightly make a person step back and say, well, what? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what hope do I have? And then he describes it. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We read that list and, and those, those sins. I mean, who among us can, can say, I'm not an idolater? So on the surface, for John to say that we can have confidence in the day of judgment seems to me a little optimistic. It's wrong, of course, to not fear because we don't deserve God's wrath. We do. But our confidence, our confidence lies in what John says next. He says we have, can, we have this confidence. Why? Because as he is, so also are we in the world. That phrase, because as he is, so also are we, should be a phrase that you memorize and meditate upon daily. As he is, so also are we. What does this mean? I believe one of the things that John is referring to here is a divine exchange that happens. As Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18 that we looked at, uh, the righteous dies for the unrighteous. There's this divine exchange that happens where my unrighteousness, he bears the penalty for, and, and by God's amazing creative economy, I receive Christ's righteousness, and that gets credited to my account. 
Uh, Paul would describe it this way in Philippians 3.9, we're found in Jesus not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. As I place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, for my deliverance from future judgment, I'm not receiving a righteousness that's my own. I'm receiving by faith the righteousness that belongs to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you say, intellectually, that sounds really cool. Okay, so now I, have, I, I, I am unrighteous, I am a sinner, and yet by God's grace, as I place my faith in Jesus, I receive Christ's righteousness. Let me describe a little bit of the righteousness that you're receiving. Okay, because I want you to understand why this is a point that should give you confidence. Why John is so excited about this truth in verse 17. Let's describe Jesus' righteousness and contrast it with our own unrighteousness. I'm not a very compassionate person. Some would argue not even all that nice at times. But what does Jesus Jesus is a perfectly compassionate person. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, I'm not all that sacrificially loving on my own, but what is Jesus? He's perfectly sacrificial. John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. In John 13, it says this about Jesus' love. Catch this. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Even as even as some who are in, of his own are deserting him, he loves them perfectly. I don't have that type of love. When it comes to the day of judgment, if I'm going to be weighed on the basis of my own ability to love you guys, and you guys are going to be judged on your ability to love me, we're all in trouble. I would much rather have the righteousness of the person who loved them to the very end. What about obedience? I'm not that of obedient of a person. But what is Jesus? Jesus says in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How cool is that? It's like sitting next to the girl in physics class who has all the answers. And she gives you her paper and the teacher looks at her paper as yours. You get 100%. That's the type of obedience we receive from Jesus. Listen to what he says in John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus Christ, catch this. Jesus Christ is perfectly obedient. He is obedient in every possible way. Because of this perfect unity that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus' will is to do the will of the Father, and he does it perfectly without failure at every moment of his eternal existence. From eternity past to eternity future, Jesus Christ has been perfectly and will be perfectly obedient to the Father. That's pretty good. And that, that is the obedience that is credited to me when I stand before God. There are a lot of you who I would like to be like in certain ways. I, I have friends who, who sometimes I look at areas of their life and I, I, I try to emulate in, in, in some different ways. And, and it's, you know, but no matter how great you are, can't, first of all, I can't emulate you perfectly. And, and secondly, I don't want to. Because you've got issues too. But the cool thing is, there's only one person that I would really desire to be exactly like. And by God's grace, I receive all the righteousness that he has. Now, what's the practical effect of this? Some of you fear God's condemnation. Even if you're a believer, you still believe that there's something God's going to do to you because of something you've done in your past. God's, you know, there's still some divine debt out there that God's going to exact from you. Do you really hold Christ's righteousness at so little value? How likely do you believe it to be that God the Father is not going to find God the Son's righteousness sufficient? When we believe that we face God's condemnation, punishment for sin. We're believing that Christ's righteousness isn't all that great. How can you think that God would condemn Jesus? God the Father would condemn Jesus. And, and by the way, how could we help but grow in sanctification as a result of being like Christ. You should be confident because Christ's righteousness by God's grace is counted as your righteousness. Here's the last thing and I touch on it briefly. And by the way, I, I hope you're preparing your hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And, and I hope that all of this is kind of going to culminate in, in some, some neat time of worship of the Lord as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. But here's, here's the last thing. You need to be confident. You need to be confident because God says he loves you and he says he won't condemn you. There's no fear in love, John writes in verse 18. 
there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, so what does it mean there's no fear in love? And he's talking there about the fear of condemnation, the fear of, of judgment. He says, but perfect love, and again that word perfect means completed, a love that's reaching its goal, and the goal of God's love is for you to have this, this confidence of his love for you. This, this love casts out fear. And so as you encounter the love that's being described here in chapter 4, a love that gives us confidence, a, a love that, that gives us salvation, a love that, that, that he's described here as, as, as being a, a love that is, that is uh, the love that's turned away the wrath of God, as we see that love the Father has for us, as we see that love we have for the Father, as we see that love that you have for me that comes from the Father, that love that I have for you that also comes for you that also comes from the Father. As we see this type of love played out, what happens? This type of love, the love that's accomplishing its goal, casts out fear. A heart that believes that God loves him or her is a heart that cannot simultaneously fear God's condemnation. If you are receiving the benefits of love that God desires you to receive, you shouldn't still be fearing his condemnation. If you are, love isn't having its right effect in your life. Now, why does love do this? Well, because he says fear has to do with punishment. Now, it's certainly true, and I know we're going to get questions about this perhaps, but it's certainly true that God disciplines, right? But what's the difference between love and discipline? Discipline can encompass a large range of things that God brings into us and brings into our life, not to exact punishment, but to achieve sanctification, greater Christ-likeness. All of the things that God brings into our life, and there's, and there's all types of discipline, right? You know, whenever I sit down and I talk to my kids about, hey, here's the right thing to do, that's discipline. When I sit down and I just spend time with my kids and just relational time, that's discipline. So discipline is a, a, a word that encompasses a lot of different things. But God's love for us means that even though we may encounter his discipline, his loving discipline, the sign of a loving father, we're not going to encounter his punishment being having to pay for the crimes we've committed. You're not going to be punished for your sins because someone else has already been. There's absolutely nothing else you have to do to take care of your sins. There's no outstanding debt, and to believe that there is is an insult to the absolute work of Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we've been justified by his blood, declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to come. You and I, by God's grace, can be confident. There's no fear in love, but perfect love, love that has accomplished its goal, casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Beloved, be confident. 
be confident because of the gospel, a gospel that was designed to bring you into relationship with God, a God who wants to abide with you. Be confident because Christ's righteousness is now your righteousness. As God looks upon you positionally, he no longer sees your sin, but he, but he sees Christ's righteousness, the one who's perfectly obedient, perfectly loving, perfectly everything. And be confident because God loves you. And if you're a believer, will not condemn you. It's the beauty of love that John is describing for us in 1 John 4. Love gives us confidence. I want you to, to begin with me to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. I want you to just, just bow your heads with me even now. and Maybe there are some things, as you think about God, for, for some of you, and I know for different backgrounds of us, this affects us in different ways, but for some of you, your, your dominant image of God maybe of, of, of a God who, who is very unhappy with you, who lives, this God in, in your mind lives on a, on a daily, um, you know, kind of in daily displeasure of you, thinking of, of ways to, uh, that, you, that you've wronged him. And, and I don't believe that's the biblical concept of God. And I, now, of course, it's wrong to believe that God delights in sin, but even as we think about God's displeasure with sin, our temptation, I think, is to forget God's great love for us, a love that dealt completely with our sin. I'm going to invite the, the men uh, to come forward. And you know, keep, your, keep your heads bowed here for just a moment. As, as the men come forward to, protect, to, to pass out communion, I want to just pray. And then I'm going to encourage you as you, as you partake of the elements and in, in, in the quietness of your heart to continue to, to talk to God about his love for you, thanking him for it and asking him to expose areas of your life that still need to be transformed by his love. Let me pray for us, and then we'll pass out the elements. Father, thank you for your great love for us, a love that is lavish, a love that is unfair, a love that we cannot comprehend. Father, as we think about this this love, it's amazing to, to understand this idea that there's no condemnation for us now, positionally in you. Give us grace to understand that, not just intellectually, but, but applicationally. Help us to delight in you and experience the joy of our relationship in you. We pray this for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we celebrate communion together, uh, we're celebrating the means by which God demonstrated his love and the reason we can have confidence as we anticipate the day of judgment. It's not on the basis of any of our work. It's on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ alone. If you would prepare to partake of the, the bread with me, take the first layer off your cup and, and take the bread. We know that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he gave him thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup, the cup represents the blood of Jesus that inaugurated and is a basis on which we can have confidence in the, the new covenant. 
if we think about the cup, we know that apart from the shedding of, of Jesus' blood, there would be no forgiveness, no basis for us to have confidence. And so as we drink of the cup together, we also are celebrating the work by which we were brought into relationship with God. If you prepare to partake of the cup with me, the same way also after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. Father, we thank you for this symbol by which we can remember your sacri- the sacrificial work of your son Jesus on the cross, and a work that brings us into relationship with you. We pray that you, by your grace, would allow us to know that, to believe it, to live it. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Earlier this morning, we sang, Now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin, now canceled at the cross? Complete atonement you have made, and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. The chorus, our response to those great theological truths that we've talked about this morning from 1 John 4, our response is, Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. I pray that that is the response of every person here this morning, that you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you would do so, believing that God has completely dealt his own wrath at the cross. And if you are a believer, that you would believe that, that you would live a life of joy, believing that God has completely, totally dealt with sin. You don't have to. You can't. Only by God's grace working within you can you continue to pursue righteousness, and you should. Let's pray the prayer of benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people said with joy, amen. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.